yeah, posterity's right. sake. Uh, so anyway, so for years and years, I, I resisted. I didn't do anything incredibly rebellious. I just resisted uh, God's call in my life. But um, he eventually broke me and showed me what uh, he was leading me to do. And um, since that time, uh, it's been a lot easier walking with the Lord than against the Lord. Um, so my wife is not able to be here, nor are our children. Uh, my wife and I have been married now for 19 years. Her name is Kristen. We have four kids, uh, three boys, 15, 13, and 10, and a little girl who is also 10. The, the youngest two are not twins. We adopted our daughter, and our youngest two are about uh, seven months, eight months apart from one another. So for part of the year, they're the same age. Part of the year, they're not. Uh, but they had a lot of stuff going on this weekend, so they send their condolences. They couldn't be here with us this weekend. And I also will come bringing greetings from your brothers and sisters at the Cottle Creek ARP Church. We're up in Mooresville, North Carolina. That's north of Charlotte. If you know your I-77 geography, you just go north and you hit uh, Charlotte, then Huntersville, and then Mooresville. Uh, I was asking James a little while ago about the history of the Bethel Church, and he said that next year you're celebrating your 200 years as a congregation, which is an amazing milestone. Next year, Cottle Creek will be celebrating our 270th year as a uh, congregation. We were founded about 1753, uh, and if you know your ARP history, that means we were a church before the merger of the Associate Presbytery and the Reform Presbytery. Our church was originally an Associate Presbyterian Church, and then after the merger, uh, they came into the ARP as a whole. So a lot of rich history here, a lot of rich history there, and um, something we can give God thanks for, for his faithfulness in maintaining these churches. Uh, It's not in us, it's really in the Lord and his faithfulness to his people. But I am glad to be with you all this weekend. Um, And this weekend, we're going to be looking at the book of Joel. So if you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and uh, open up to Joel. If you want to use your phone, that's fine too. Um, But go ahead and find the book of Joel. I think as you're finding that, I'll say I I think all of us have particular parts of the Bible that we love, that we're familiar with, that we go to a lot. For a lot of us, that's probably one of the Gospels or maybe something like uh, Romans or Ephesians or 1 John. There are, there are places in God's Word, maybe the book of Psalms, that we go to quite often. We're familiar with them. We love them. And our Bibles almost open themselves there. And then there are parts of the Bible that we are not as familiar with. Parts of the Bible that we don't go to quite as frequently. And I think the, the prophetic books in general, for many of us, fall into that unfamiliar category And the minor prophets in particular fall into that category. Um, They're sort of what I refer to as the Bermuda Triangle of our Bibles. They're kind of uncharted waters. When you get into them, you're not really sure where you are or where you're going or how to understand them or maybe even how to find your way out of the minor prophets. As a result of that, we kind of skip that part of the Bible. I had a, a professor in college who used to, he was a Bible professor, and uh, the first day of class he would just pick a random student, pick up their Bible, and look at it. And you know most Bibles have that gold foil along the edges of the pages, and he would hold it like this to see which parts of the gold foil were kind of worn out the most and which were still shiny. And his point was always that that middle portion, <laughs> the, the, the major and minor prophets, always seemed to have that nice gloss still. Whereas the New Testament's worn out, and maybe you know Genesis and 
some the book of Psalms are kind of worn out, but those the, the prophetic books tend to be books that we just don't go to quite as frequently. Point in case, uh, how long did it take you to find Joel uh, this evening when I asked you to turn there? Um, it takes us a little while. Some of us maybe even have to look at the table of contents just to be sure we're in the right neighborhood. Uh, it can be one of those places where we don't go quite as frequently. And I don't mention that to, to call you out and to embarrass you or anything like that, but just to prove that we're just not as familiar with the prophets and the minor prophets as we are perhaps with the New Testament and the Gospels. But my hope is this weekend, as we go through the book of Joel, that that will begin to reverse that trend, that you'll be able to see that the, prof- the prophetic books really are approachable and, believe it or not, they even have something to say to us today. Even though they were written to a particular people at a particular time thousands of years ago, they still have something for us today. And Joel is actually a great place to jump into the Minor Prophets, not only because it's a short book, it's only three chapters long, we're going to be able to get through an entire book of the Bible this weekend, Um, but not only because it's a short book, but also because there's no one who really knows a whole lot about Joel. And so the learning curve isn't all that steep. Uh, Apart from his name, Joel, which if you look at it, you can see it kind of comes in two parts, Joel, which means Yahweh is God. Apart from his name, we don't know a whole lot about this guy. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the Old Testament. He's not mentioned or referenced very much in the New Testament. And what's more, he doesn't really give us any clues as to even when he was an active prophet. You know, when you go to most of the prophetic books, they'll mention at least like a king, the name of one of the kings that kind of lets us have a timestamp, or maybe some event that happened, that that we can reference and kind of get an idea of when they served. Joel is surprisingly devoid of any of those kinds of markers. And while that's the sort of stuff that causes frustration for Bible scholars and and, and those sorts of people, for us, for people in the pew, it it actually takes away a little bit of the pressure because we find that, that, that Joel is a fairly approachable book. And it allows us to be able to focus our time really on the message. What is the message of Joel? Well, it can be summarized by a phrase that you're going to see over and over, actually, in this book. And that phrase is, the day of the Lord. You ever heard of that phrase before? The day of the Lord. We find it both Old Testament and New. Well, like most of the prophets, Joel was was active. He was commissioned to, to prophesy, to preach to a particular people in a time when they were wandering away from the Lord. And they were in danger of experiencing His judgment for sin. And so this phrase, the day of the Lord, is a way of describing the outpouring of this judgment. That there was going to come um, a time of suffering and destruction on the people because of their sin. But, but what we're going to find this weekend is that the day of the Lord doesn't just have to mean judgment. In the Bible, in Joel, in the New Testament, the day of the Lord can also mean the outpouring of God's blessing. And so as we study this book this weekend, we're going to see that Joel not only delivers this this fearful message of God's judgment, but he also holds forth this glorious promise of God's deliverance if the people would turn back to him. And so I think you'll find as, as we study this book that, that rather than it being some just this, it's distant, it's disconnected, it has no meaning for our lives, rather than that, that there's actually a number of parallels 
from this book with our lives. And while Joel's primary audience was, was Judah thousands of years ago, because this is God's word, inspired and preserved by him for all generations of his people, there is great application for us as well. So tonight, we are going to look, or in this first session, we're going to look at chapter 1 in its entirety. It's 20 verses long, so let me read that for us, and then we'll ask the Lord to bless our study together. Joel chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns. Because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Let me pray for us. Lord our God, as we come to your word this evening, we come to this book that is perhaps one we don't turn to often. It has a very hard and difficult message, a message that is, that is hard for us to hear and hard for us to reason with. But we know that this is your word. And we know that in you and in your word we see light and light shines upon our path. 
And so we ask then that you would bless our study of it and that you would use it to to speak to our hearts and minds, to bring conviction where conviction is necessary, but also to remind us of your grace and your goodness as well. So bless this study, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so we've read that first chapter, and, and some of you may be wondering what is going on. What is going on in this book? It talks about locusts and and the fields and all of this destruction. What is the setting? What is the context? What's the story behind this book? Well, as we see in verse 4, a devastating infestation of locusts has, has just completely decimated the crops and the agriculture of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, these these kinds of plagues of locusts, while not everyday occurrences, weren't unheard of. And even in our own day and age, they're not necessarily unheard of. From time to time, you see on the news where where plagues of or or swarms of of locusts or grasshoppers or something like that will descend upon an area and just wreak havoc on all the the vegetation in that particular area. I don't pretend to be a whatever a bug scientist is called, etymologist or something like that. I I don't have any sort of, of training in that. But it does seem that when conditions are just right, they can lead to a large hatching of these things and they can come and they can just devastate an area. Um, The only touchstone I really have for this, uh, some of you may keep gardens. I'm a gardener um, and I'm always growing lots of tomato plants each year. And if you grow tomatoes, you know that one of your arch nemesis is this big, nasty, fat, green worm called a hornworm. And those things in, in just about a night can strip at least half a plant. You've probably seen the effects of that. You walked out there yesterday, they look great. Today you come out and there's just bare stems. And your tomatoes have holes all in them. And they just get enormous in no time at all. We, we raise chicken now, chickens now. We have discovered that chickens love those worms. And so uh, that has seemed to help. But, but that's my only touchstone for this. And that's just a handful of those worms that can, can ruin my crop. But imagine just a dark cloud of locusts that, that come into an area and in verse 4, it talks about what, what one wave left behind, the next wave eats, and what that wave left behind, the next wave destroyed. And apparently this, this particular swarm that hit in Judah, hit Judah in Joel's day was, was particularly terrible. He says, has anything like this ever happened before? This is the sort of thing that you're going to tell your children about, and they're going to tell their children about. There was nothing left. And this chapter really graphically describes the, the, the aftermath of all of this destruction. It talks about vines being laid to waste, fig trees splintered, grain destroyed, the trees of the field were dried up, no pasture for the sheep or for the cattle. You think back to a couple of years ago, you remember the, those first few weeks of lockdown uh, during COVID, how everybody was rushing to the grocery store and there was nothing on the shelves. Not, not just toilet paper, but basics, you know, meat and everything else. It was, it was empty. And we panicked. People were panicking about that because they'd go to the grocery store and there was nothing to be seen. And, and we were panicking even though we still had a, a supply chain. It was, it was backed up. It was having trouble catching up. But, but there was still food to be had. We just had to wait for it. That's not the case for Judah. There was no more in the fields. The markets were empty because the fields were empty because there was nothing to get. Just complete and utter devastation. That's how bad this was. And it leads Joel to ask this question of the leaders of the people of Judah in verse 2. Has such a thing ever happened in your days, 
or in the days of your father? And of course, the answer was no. This was, this was unprecedented destruction that was coming upon the land. And it's against this destruction that Joel launches into his ministry. That Joel delivers his message. You see, what Joel wanted people to understand, really what the Lord wanted people to understand through Joel, was why this had happened. Why this particular plague had come upon them. This wasn't just a random happening of nature. This was an intentional act of God. It was God's warning to Judah that if they did not turn back to Him, then a greater destruction was going to befall them. And that was probably an unthinkable thing to many of them because they were looking at the worst devastation in their entire lives. And Joel's message is something worse is going to come. This this day of the Lord that he mentions. Now, We need to back up, though, for a moment. Because we need to remember the larger story of God's people. We need to remember that that long before God had rescued His people from slavery in Egypt. We're all familiar with the story of the Exodus. How God had, had delivered them from that land, brought them into the wilderness, established His covenant with them at Mount Sinai, and made wonderful promises to them. I will be your God, you will be my people. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bring you to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then God went on to tell them that if if they would just faithfully walk before Him, if they would just obey His commands and follow Him with their whole hearts, then they would be blessed greatly. It... Maybe later tonight or tomorrow, you can flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. And and God opens that chapter by outlining this long list of promises, long list of blessings that will be the people's if they would walk in faithfulness to Him. They They would experience multiplication. They would experience fruitfulness. Fruitfulness of the womb, of their crops, of their herds, of their wealth. All of it was going to multiply. God was going to bless them beyond measure. But in that same chapter, he also warns them. And he he outlines a list of curses that would come upon them if they failed to walk in faithfulness. And, And what's really scary is that list of curses is like twice as long as the list of blessings in that particular chapter. And among the curses is this. God says, you will carry much seed into the field, but will gather in little for the locusts will consume it. And what's the setting of Joel? This destruction by locusts. And these curses then we see will culminate, if you follow Deuteronomy 28 to the very end, these curses would culminate in another nation coming and destroying the land and carrying the people off. Well, you know the history of Israel and Judah. Rather than walking in faithfulness, what did they do? (laughs) Over and over again, what did they do? They turn away from God, don't they? That's what most of the Old Testament narrative is all about. It begins in the book of Judges and then throughout the monarchy and into the, the prophetic books. God's people over and over again turned away from Him. And what's so amazing about it is how patient God was for all those years. First, God sent the Judges. The judges would show up and and rescue the people when they cried out. Then later, God permitted the monarchy and He gave them kings to lead them. And then beyond that, He would send prophets to, to warn and to counsel. 
time and again calling his people back to faithfulness, but they wouldn't listen. And so we see that he began to bring about those curses from Deuteronomy chapter 28, and that's the background here. Joel is trying to make the people understand that they were now under judgment, but they didn't get it. They were so dull to God at this point as a nation. They were so dull to God that even in this enormous devastation by these locusts, they didn't see the connection. They didn't see that they were culpable for what had befallen them. And so Joel has to spell it out for them. And what he does in first, this first chapter is he does so by, by offering them three imperatives, or really rebukes, but three imperatives and then prescribes a course of corrective action for them. And so the first thing he says to them in this passage is, wake up. Look at verse 5. He says, awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine. Now, while in this verse he's singling out the drunkards and the drinkers of wine, we have to remember in verse 2, he started off by addressing everyone in Judah. All you elders and all you inhabitants of the land. And so what he's really doing in verse 5, he's comparing all these people, the elders and the inhabitants of the land, he's comparing all of them to a bunch of drunks. uh, To a bunch of people who are stumbling around, reveling in their debauchery, and are therefore blind to anything else that is going on around them. They were completely unaware of the danger they were in, and they needed to snap out of it. Their their land had been laid low because of their sin, and if they weren't careful to repent, an even worse judgment was looming. And so the first thing Joel says is, wake up! Wake up and look around and see what has happened. And then we see in verse 8, he gives them a second imperative, and that second imperative is lament. And this What we see in verse 8 is really a graphic description of the sorrow they should have been demonstrating. Verse 8 says, Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. You think about the imagery here. The imagery is of of a young woman about to be married. Everything has been prepared. She's, she's found the gown. She's found the dress. It's perfect. It's beautiful. She can't wait to put it on. All the arrangements have been made. And finally, the day comes when she is supposed to be married. But with that day also comes the news that her groom has died. And so instead of putting on that beautiful dress that she had been looking forward to wearing for months and months, she's reduced to wearing sackcloth. And she grieves her emptiness when she should have been celebrating her fullness. And that's what's described in this passage. The emptiness of Judah. The grain offering, the drink offering, all of these things are cut off. But this plague hadn't just disrupted their their day-to-day lives. It had also robbed them of the most central thing to them, and that was the worship of of God. You see, what did Jerusalem have that was so important to the people of Judah? What was in Jerusalem? The temple. That's exactly right. There was the temple. The, the, the temple was sort of the, it defined who they were. It was the, the core of their lives. Even as, as far away as they had drifted from the Lord in their hearts, they still observed ritualist, ritualistically the, the temple worship. 
It kind of defined who they were. And yet this devastation has deprived them even of that because the grain offering and the drink offering were cut off. If all of your crops are destroyed, if all the vineyards are destroyed, guess what you can't offer anymore? Grain and wine offerings. You can't worship anymore. All of that has been stripped away. And Joe calls on them to lament and weep over this loss. And so he tells them, wake up. He tells them to lament. And then we see in verse 11, he says, be ashamed and wail. You see, the farmers weren't able to produce their crop. The merchants in the city weren't able to sell anything because there was nothing to sell. Which meant the peoples in the city and the nation went hungry. Their, their very livelihoods had been removed. There was nothing for them to rejoice about. There was nothing to celebrate. God had stripped away all their comfort and all their security. And Joel comes into all of that and tells them to understand it for what it was. A warning from God. But he also calls on them to turn back to the Lord. And that's what we see prescribed in verses 13 and 14. Look look at this, the way it kind of changes. Joel's message changes. He begins by telling them to, to wake up and to lament and to wail. But then in verses 13 and 14, he gives them something they can do. He says, put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in and pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of the Lord. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the Lord to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Lament. Call for a fast. Cry out to the Lord. In other words, all of this means repent. This is a message of repentance here. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your idols and turn back to God. See, here's the scary thing about what Joel's preaching. That that wave of locusts that came through was not the final judgment. That that was the the forerunner to it. That was the wake-up call because what God had planned next, if they would not repent, would be far, far worse. It's the day of the Lord that is prepared. A day that was far more terrible than their current crisis as we're going to see outlined this evening after dinner. So let's think for a moment about what's happening then in Judah. If we were to boil it all down, what we see in this chapter, if we were to boil it all down, we would say that God has taken away from the people everything that they had been trusting in. They had long since turned away from Him as their rock and their redeemer. They They were trusting in so many other things. Other things that they found their identity and their security in. Their wine, their pleasure seeking, their religiosity, their jobs, their resources. All of that had been taken away from them. And now Joel is helping to connect the dots. It should have been in the Lord that they found these things. It should have been in the Lord that they found their identity and their security and their trust. But instead they had gone after all these false gods. And they looked to, to the, the good things of the world as if they were ultimate things in the world. And I can't help but wonder if that doesn't sound at least somewhat familiar to some of the things that we've experienced as a people even over the last couple of years. 
as we, we trace back, even, even to the beginning of COVID, as I mentioned earlier, with those grocery stores uh, empty, they were bare. Some of those things were taken away from us. Where we're still at a point now where as a people, not just as a nation, but as a people, as God's people, we're, we're concerned for, for the trajectory of our nation and of our, our freedoms. Could it be that the Lord has been signaling to His people throughout the world, here in America, throughout the world, has He been signaling to His people for us, it's time for us to wake up. Now, I'm not saying that we're under the exact same scenario and circumstances as we find here in Joel, but neither do I want us to be dull like they were. I don't want us to be dull to what the Lord would have us consider in this time. What what has the Lord been communicating to His people over these last couple of years? What lesson would He have us learn from our circumstances? What lesson would God have us learn from Joel? You see, a passage like this It provides us all an opportunity to consider our own hearts and our own lives, not only as as single individuals, but also as a a corporate people as well as as God's people. If if we leave this, this season of life that we've gone through these last couple of years without reflecting on what's happened and asking what could God be up to through all of this, if we, if we leave without having asked hard questions about ourselves, without having considered what God is doing in our midst, then I'm afraid that we will be as tone deaf as some of the people in Joel's day. Now, while it's certainly true that, that we have Jesus Christ, and while it's true that we have an assurance of salvation and eternal blessing in Him, we also recognize that this side of heaven, we're not where we're supposed to be yet. None of us has reached perfection yet. All of us still battle with temptation and with sin. It wasn't just the people of the Old Testament who battled with wandering away from God. It's it's all of us. This struggle is present even today. The the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the Ephesians in chapter 5, is kind of calling them out because they were still struggling with this battle of allegiance. He begins in chapter 5 by telling them to be imitators of God as beloved children, and to flee from things like sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness. And then a little bit later, he actually says to them, wake up. He's quoting, but he says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And then he says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Paul was writing to a church that had been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was writing to a church full of people like you and like me. People who had been brought out of darkness and into the marvelous light of Christ. But people who still struggled with sin. They struggled with all kinds of sin. And they struggled with falling back into those old patterns and, and giving in to new temptations. And just like Joel, Paul calls on them to wake up and to be careful how they walk. Well, think about it. Let's, let's, let's connect the dots ourselves tonight then. If the people in Joel's day needed to wake up, if the people in Paul's day needed to wake up, what makes us think that we're any different or we're any better or we're more advanced than they were? 
James mentioned that on Sunday mornings he's beginning to walk you all through the, the seven letters in the book of Revelation to the various churches. And in his letter to the church of Sardis, Jesus says this. He tells that church, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And then Jesus says, wake up and strengthen what remains. Remember what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. For if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Can you imagine a more fearful thought than Jesus coming against you? Particularly those of us who are part of His church. He's speaking to the church at Sardis. And He says, wake up and remember and repent and return or I will come against you. Those are strong words. And Paul's words to the Ephesians were strong. And Joel's words to Judah were strong. But get this, they're also gracious words. They're spoken by God out of great love for us. How can words of warning and words of coming judgment, how can we say that those are gracious words? Well, let me put it to you this way. Imagine one of your children goes outside to play. And while he or she is out there playing, they, they, they wander out into the road, maybe chasing a ball or they're playing with a truck and they just sort of find their way out into the road and they are so focused on what they're doing that they don't see the, the peril that is coming at them at 55 miles an hour. And you see them in that predicament and what is the parent, what do you do? You yell at them, Right? You scream out to them. You, you, you yell with a loud voice, even perhaps a fearful voice to them to get out of the road. You're not yelling because you hate them. You're yelling because you love them. You're warning them of the danger that's coming their way. Well, so it is with God. In Joel, and in Ephesians, and even Jesus in Revelation. He's warning because He loves. And He wants better for you. He wants better for me than for us to dully and blindly and and drunkenly, as it were, be so focused on our own sinful wants that we incur His wrath. And so we see then in a book like Joel and all this judgment and warning that we have, it's actually a gracious thing from God because God is calling on His people to wake up Consider your way of life and turn back to the Lord in faithfulness and in obedience. This is the message God gave Joel to preach to Judah. It's the message that Jesus gives to the church at Sardis. And it's the message that God would have for all of us to hear this evening. Wake up, consider your life, and return to the Lord if you have wandered from Him. It's a gracious word. It's one that we should thank the Lord for. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord our God, it is difficult to hear and to read of judgment and to hear of of Your wrath that is to come and yet we recognize that it's a gracious word as well. 
Because you warn those you love. Just as we would warn our children from danger that they might be in. And so Lord, we pray then that you would help us to see it for what it is. That even as we we study a book like Joel, that we would recognize that, that there is grace even in judgment. A judgment that, because of Jesus Christ, has not fallen on those of us who have looked to faith in Him, but instead fell on Him in our place. And the grace is that you gave to us His righteousness so that we can be counted as children, sons and daughters of the Most High. So Lord, bless us as we have studied this passage. Refresh us with this meal that we are about to enjoy and then refresh us again by your word a little later as we continue in Joel to chapter 2. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, James, what's the instructions? Uh, we'll head down to our and uh, we'll look at the